1: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, ransomware attacks have been going on for a long time, but lately the hackers, who lock up a company's data, then demand payment for unlocking them, have gotten more brazen with far-reaching impacts. The latest attacks affected the U.S.'s fuel and meat supply prompting President Biden to launch a new ransomware task force and announce this morning new strategies for combating the cyber threat. This hour, we break down what ransomware attacks are, why they're on the rise, and weigh Biden's plans for addressing them. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ransomware attacks have more than doubled in the U.S. from 2019 to 2020, according to a Washington Post analysis. These are when hackers lock up victims' computer files so they can no longer access them, then demand payment for unlocking them. The biggest recent attacks hit Colonial Pipeline in May, causing fear of fuel shortages and lines at gas stations, and hit the company JBS in June, a major U.S. beef producer that also stoked supply fears and drove up already high meat prices. We look at what's behind these attacks and how the U.S. is responding. Joining me first is Ellen Nakashima, national security reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome to Forum, Ellen Nakashima. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. And so interestingly, the cyber criminal group that was behind the attack I just mentioned on beef supplier JBS, as well as an attack on Casia, a major tech services company, that group went dark this week. What can you tell us about that hacker group known as Revil, I guess, and, and what happened on Tuesday?
3: Our Evil is a ransomware group that is thought to operate largely out of Russia, and as you noted, has been behind some of the biggest ransomware attacks of late. They suddenly disappeared from the internet, um, from the dark web, whether they keep their blog as well as the open web, where they have their uh, their site with which they communicate with victims and receive payment and send out the decryption tool to help victims unlock their computers and so that immediately set off uh, speculation as to whether uh there was the you know, u.s government uh was it a u.s government operation or an allied com- uh countries uh, uh operation or just was it was it putin himself putting pressure mm-hmm. on the group or the group going you know deciding to go underground the experts tell me that it doesn't look like it was a U.S. operation and and Chris can probably also one of your guests Chris Painter can talk to how that is probably also not likely at this point Um, in part because it was not it was a um, fact was the what happened was the Uh, IP addresses were no longer resolving and that was looked like it was something that happened at the level of the uh, domain host. Mm. And it's, uh, well, we should note that the, the Kremlin spokesman said denied that they were even aware of it or behind that. It could well be that it was just the group deciding, you know, to go to go underground, it has done this before. And it reappeared under the name are evil, so maybe they'll come back rebranded. In any case, uh, it's it's still a, you know, it's still not officially known why they're not there. But it could also have impacts for victims that are not able to uh, get a decryption key to
1: unlock hmm. their systems. So you're saying that are evil. It went dark a couple of days after President Biden spoke with Russian President Putin to shut down the ransomware groups, but that isn't looking like why the group has gone dark. Why would a group go dark? Is it just because the pressure or the publicity just got too intense? What are the advantages of doing that
3: well I, I get i that could be you know one of the uh the main motives for doing so. This has happened in the past and it happened with uh our evil before and with uh, other groups, it's it's not clear exactly why they would do so now. But the the heat has been turned up, and there's a lot of uh, scrutiny being placed on these groups. And the Biden administration is talking about uh, taking a number of different actions to disrupt their networks. If the if the Kremlin, if Vladimir Putin himself doesn't take action right now to disrupt them himself.
1: Yes, last night reporters learned that the White House has launched a new task force and new initiatives to combat ransomware. Can you talk about what those are? What do we know about these strategies?
3: Yes, in fact, the, the task force really sort of began back in April, even before the big, you know, major colonial pipeline attack, but they the efforts have sort of amped up since then. And this task force is now doing you know, weekly updates to, to really track what's going on across the US government and all the different agencies to, to combat the, um, the ransomware scourge through um, re- building up resilience. So doing the defensive side as well as potentially offensive actions, whether it's to disrupt the networks using uh, cyber command, the military arm, of the Department of Defense uh, through law enforcement actions. The FBI uh, recently seized over $2 million in cryptocurrency ransom that Colonial Pipeline had paid a different Russian ransomware group called Darkside. Uh, The Justice Department could use law enforcement tools to to try uh, to get uh, sites and operators in other countries to, to take take down some of the infrastructure used by these criminal groups. So the White House is, is trying to tackle this on a number of fronts. They, they say there are you know, sort of four lines of effort includes disruption, resilience, working with, this is important, working with allies and partners in other countries uh, to both put pressure on countries like Russia, that harbor often harbor these criminal actors and give them safe haven, even if they're not directing the groups themselves in these attacks. And then also to enforce anti-money laundering rules and regulations to help uh, bring more transparency to these money laundering, uh, you know, to these, to these exchanges that are what the uh, criminals often have to use to transfer, to, uh, transfer the Bitcoin into currency.
1: Yes. So looking at all different ways that they can turn off the cash spigot, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, to yeah. some of these ransomware attackers yeah, or... Little, yes,
3: little, go ahead. Uh, little initiatives. I don't know I should say little, but the Department of Homeland Security has launched launched a website called stopransomware.gov to give the victims... Uh, support and tips and information about where they can go for help if they are victimized by uh, by ransomware. And the State Department is offering up to ten million dollars in a rewards for justice program for information um, that that helps crack down on ransomware gangs. But of course, there's a little catch there. It has to be. Uh, it's it's if, if the uh, hackers are either directed by or under the control of a foreign government. And oftentimes these criminal groups really are not uh, either acting on their own. They may have some tenuous connections to lower levels of Mm. the Russian services, but they're not acting at the direction of the Kremlin.
1: So could you help us understand just how, or put in context for us, this attention that the federal government is giving to ransomware attacks. Have you seen anything like this before? No, look, I mean, I've been
3: sort of covering the space for over a decade. And I, mean, I remember writing an article here or there, you know, five years ago. And and this this was, you know, four years ago, three years ago, but it was largely seen as a criminal matter and affecting um you know smaller businesses or schools or municipalities when my first article back in 2016 i think the ransoms were in the 10 maybe 20,000 17,000 now they're in the millions but what really vaulted this into the public consciousness and raised this to a level of a national security threat was the attack on colonial pipeline in may where the you know country's largest uh, uh, refined products pipeline, fuel pipeline, well, uh, shut down its, its pipeline after ransomware snarled up its, uh, its business network. Not its actual operational network, but its business side network. And mm. nonetheless, they shut down the pipeline and, as a precaution. And that just sent, uh, you know, waves of panic across so many millions of, of uh, drivers in the southeast and caused panic buying. I remember I couldn't, you know, find gasoline anywhere in, in my area to, to fill my tank. And it, it raised fears of a major uh, major fuel shortage. So that really caught the attention of the, of the public and the, the U.S. government, the Biden administration. Yes. And shortly after that, you mentioned the JBS attack. So between those two, I mean, this, this really elevated the issue. Yeah, you're talking
1: about the fuel supply and then the food supply being affected. Before I let you go, Ellen Nakashima, you said something interesting, which is that with the group that was responsible for the JBS attack or evil going offline, it doesn't sound like you're saying that it makes the companies they attacked whole again. Can you just let us know where they are left, especially if if their systems are still down? (laughs) You're restoring uh, restoring systems uh, that have been hit by
3: ransomware is not an easy issue. And even if they do get the decryption tool, it can still take days or weeks, months, sometimes even to to restore the data, depending on how it's been kept, and depending on whether the company has had backups. But I, I do also want to make a point here before I, uh, I I have to leave, and that's there. You know there is. There are ways that uh, the Biden administration can try to, to change the calculus here. And that is, you know, President Biden has met with uh, President Putin. He met, they met one-on-one in Geneva last month. And Biden said he warned Putin that if Putin doesn't take responsibility, if the Russian government doesn't take responsibility for the, uh, to crack down on criminals, Carrying out these attacks on their soil, then the U.S. government itself was going to have to act. Was going to disrupt. Have to disrupt them, and then he followed up with a call on Friday to to Putin about this. Uh, now, you know, this is also raising expectations that the administration will act forcefully because you can bet there's going to be another attack, and so we're just going to have to to, to watch to see whether any of this engagement is really going to make a difference. I think some smart analysts have noted that, you know, the, the US government that Biden should and could threatened, say sanctions on, on the Russian oil and gas sectors, Russian energy sector, those really haven't been tried in any significant and forceful way yet. And if you link those sec, uh, you know, threat of sanctions to possibility of a change in behavior, cracking down on criminals, that might just in combination with some of these other measures
1: I've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Ellen Nakashima, more after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the recent ransomware attacks on U.S. targets, and we're joined by now by Nicholas Weaver, Senior Researcher in Networking and Security at the International Computer Science Institute at UC Berkeley. Uh, Nicholas Weaver, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: We were just talking with Ellen Nakashima, national security reporter for The Washington Post, who was laying out the latest news and the latest efforts by the federal government to try to address ransomware attacks after two very high profile ones just occurred in the U.S. with really broad reaching implications and effects. I wanted to just backtrack a little bit with you. And first, could you just help us understand what a ransomware attack is? Walk us through how an attack plays out, for example. So, when a company is attacked, what is usually the first thing that happens?
2: So, when a company is attacked, they find that their computers are offline. And if they have a good disconnected backup system, they then just basically turn off their computers and go into restore everything from backup. But if the backup was not offline, they're looking at the problem of their data is probably non-recoverable absent external help. So they tend to contact their insurance company and their insurance company sets them up with a ransomware negotiator. Um, And so these negotiators basically are a key intermediary in the system, Mm. which uh, helps the victim company negotiate with the ransomware gang, uh, often dropping the price by 50%. And then uh, also the negotiators play a huge role in actually securing payment.
1: What is the ransom demand typically? How do they calculate that, these attackers?
2: Uh it's usually just kind of ballpark it based on how big the business is, how many computers, et cetera. So like uh our evil was fifty thousand a computer in the recent uh attack or 70 million to unlock them all. Mm. Um colonial pipeline was five million. I've heard of others in the five million dollar range. Um And basically what ends up happening is the negotiator has the contacts in order to also pay the ransom. And then the victim company gets the decryptor that may or may not work very well. And hopefully after a couple of weeks is back up online.
1: Why would a company choose to pay the ransom?
2: Because it can be significantly less disruptive than the alternative that um, that if you're looking at complete data loss because you have backups in your company, but your backups are online, that is they're connected to the rest of your computer network, often the ransomware gangs will erase the backups first, so you mm-hmm. can't restore from backup. And they're also strongly encouraged in many cases by the insurance companies because the insurance company looks at their cost of payout in this case versus, um, versus the business disruption. And between the insurance company and the business, they make a decision to, um, to pay.
1: Also, it sounds like in some cases, if they don't, they could even go out of business. So that's
2: yeah. massive. You can potentially lose all your data. Uh, another thing, though, that's really important to consider is fundamentally, it is not just a ransom problem, it is a cryptocurrency problem.
1: So talk about so, that a little bit. How, how do these ransomware attackers, how do these groups get paid?
2: So if you wanted to pay a $5 million ransom, you have basically three choices, banks, cash, or cryptocurrency. The banks refuse to support these ransomware gangs because they would view it as an existential risk to the bank itself. You get cut off from banking. We've seen this happen in other contexts. So banks are very conservative. So they'd be unwilling to receive the money on behalf of a ransomware gang. Cash is also obviously a non-starter because $5 million worth of cash is two big suitcases full of $100 bills and you're going to have to deliver it to Russia. So the cryptocurrencies are the only game in town. It's not that they're particularly good for payments. It's just as payments go, they're the one payment channel that doesn't have either a physical proximity requirement or uh, intermediaries, which will say thou shalt not pay, do criminal or undesired activity. So the, they get the Bitcoin. Now, the thing is, is they don't actually like Bitcoin because you can't go out and buy anything with Bitcoin. You can't buy a Tesla or anything else. So they have to turn it back into real money. So, the first thing they do is they transfer the cryptocurrency to one of these shady offshore cryptocurrency exchanges. Now, these cryptocurrency exchanges in question tend to be cut off from the banking system, but have lots and lots of different cryptocurrencies. So, they take the Bitcoin, sell the Bitcoin, and buy, say, Tether or Ethereum or some other cryptocurrency, transfer that to another cryptocurrency exchange that they either uh, transfer back into Bitcoin to move on, or they transfer it to a cryptocurrency exchange that has banking, sell whatever the alternate cryptocurrency is. Mm. And now they have, um, have money. I see. And so this depends on two things. It depends on... The corrupt cryptocurrency exchanges that are unbanked in order to do what's known as a chain swap, that is take one cryptocurrency and convert it to another, because stuff like Bitcoin, it's as if everybody had a Swiss numbered account, but all checks are public. So it's traceable if it's in the general transaction. But if you go to a cryptocurrency exchange, sell it and buy something else, it breaks the chain.
1: I see. Um, so this is a way of making sure that it's anonymous, whoever is sending it out, or very hard to track back to the original person who is trying to get this Bitcoin converted, as you say. The other thing that I wonder, though, is it sounds like with cryptocurrency, you can end up demanding incredibly high payments. Is that in part why we're seeing a attacks on such major big companies with a lot of money?
2: Yes that um, there is no other mechanism that can transfer these large payments. The other factor is actually dealing with cryptocurrencies is remarkably hard and annoying. So so about seven or eight years ago, we had a small scale ransomware epidemic targeting individuals. And for that, you could pay in either Bitcoin or Green Dot money packs, where you go down to 7-Eleven, buy a prepaid card. And almost all the victims used Green Dot because Bitcoin was always a pain. And now the cryptocurrency is even more of a pain to use. So Bitcoin as a system can only stand three to seven transactions a second, which means it a Bitcoin transaction can easily cost 20, 30, 40 bucks due to uh, this cap on supply. And... That means that there's a lot of friction in dealing with cryptocurrency. But that friction is the same whether you want to pay a $200 ransom or $2 million ransom. And so by going for fewer bigger targets, this big game model the frictions and limitations in the cryptocurrency systems no longer are the obstacle they'd be if you were, say, trying to extort uh, $5 million, $500 at a time.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. So the cost-benefit analysis, I guess, for lack of a better word. Really quickly, who are these hackers? Who are these people who are doing ransomware attacks?
2: Uh, We mostly believe they are uh, criminal gangs, mostly out of Russia, and they tend to operate on an affiliate model. So you have the McDonald's, uh, Are Evil, and you have Burger King, Dark Side, and some of these other gangs. And they operate under a model where the overarching franchise provides the branding which is very important. They provide the customer support. They provide the, uh, infrastructure for extorting payments, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have the affiliate that does the actual breaking into the computer and deploying of the ransomware, um, and uh, the affiliate gets like 80% of the cut um, and the ransomware gang. However, by being this established party, they've got the links with the negotiators. They've got the money laundering connections, et cetera. And so you have this division of labor and it literally is like McDonald's franchising.
1: So what you're describing is, A really big system with potentially hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars moving through it at
2: this point. Yes, it is quite probably a billion dollar a year gross revenue industry at this point. And since they don't care about the damage they're doing, the actual damage is probably on the order of 10 to 100 billion at this point.
4: Hmm.
1: We're talking with Nick Weaver, Senior Researcher in Networking and Security at International Computer Science Institute at UC Berkeley. We're talking about the recent ransomware attacks on U.S. targets, and we're talking about what ransomware attacks are and why they're on the rise and why they're having such broad impacts. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about ransomware attacks? Have you or your company been the victim of a ransomware attack? Actually, KQED was in 2017. How should the U.S. prevent these kinds of attacks and try to deal with this system that has has basically been uh, constructed around These kinds of attacks. 866-733-6786 is the number to call if you want to join the conversation. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. I want to bring Chris Painter into the conversation, former federal cyber crimes prosecutor, top cyber diplomat under President Trump and briefly, uh, sorry, top cyber diplomat under President Obama and briefly under President Trump. Chris Painter, thanks so much for being here.
4: Happy to be here with you.
1: So Nicholas Beaver has just described something rather scary, I have to say. Um, the White House, as we were talking with Ellen Nakashima about, just launched a ransomware tax- task force that will, you know, launch a website to prevent resources that are geared at assisting, stated uh preventative resources and, and try to gear them towards businesses and state and local governments for their cybersecurity related issues. She was talking about a rewards program for information that leads to the identification of cyber activity against like key U.S. infrastructure, things like that. What do you think of these steps? Will they have a significant impact on, on curbing these kinds of attacks?
4: Well, I I think they're all necessary steps. I mean, the reason you have this proliferation of ransomware groups and the reason why the demands for payment have gotten ever higher is they've been able to operate with impunity. Uh, They're they're essentially in a safe haven in Russia where Russia does nothing to crack down on them. Uh, The reason they do it is it's a high income, high upside, very low downside, very little chance they're going to be costs imposed on them. They're going to be arrested or they're going to be disrupted. So we need to look at this issue kind of holistically, every point in the chain, how do we disrupt this model so that it's not that uh, rewarding for them and we do disrupt their systems. And so uh, the steps that were taken today by the White House and, and Ellen said that um, the task force had pre-existed this and that's good, you know, one that we did a ransomware task force report, a bunch of you know, 60, uh, some for, uh, former government folks, some people in the insurance industry, some people in the technical industry, uh, back a couple of months ago, and we started it back in January. And, and that's separate reason-
1: from this one that was just...
4: Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that was a ransomware task force that was really private sector. And some government people participated too. But this was started back in January, whereas you know Ellen and I think your other guest also said, oh, look, then we there was ransomware. There's been for a while, but it didn't have the level of importance that it does now. And one of the first recommendations we had, and we had about 40 of them, was that you had to make this, treat this as a core national security issue. Now, we've been worried about nation-state attacks, and there have been things like solar winds and other big things that Russia or China have been responsible for over the years. Uh, but this really, uh, you know, is something that affects everyday citizens. It, it interrupts, disrupts critical infrastructure like the Colonial Pipelines attack. So, and we did it before that happened. We put out this report. Uh, I think Colonial Pipelines happened a week later, so that drew a lot of attention to it. And, and I, you know, I think what we've seen... Is the federal government doing exactly that? Uh, We've certainly been in dialogue with the federal government. And one of our recommendations is you need an orchestra conductor. You have lots of good work from the interagency, from the treasury department with sanctions, the state department in this rewards program. They just announced the uh, Homeland Security and a whole host of things they do and justice and some of the work they've done. But you need someone at the White House who are pulling all these things together and making sure it is a sustained effort. And indeed, that's one of the things they talked about today, and that's important.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the, to other me, thing. the most, yes, yeah, go ahead. ahead,
4: please. I am just going to say to me, the most important thing uh, is what we've seen from President Biden and him. You know, it was unthinkable probably two weeks before the, uh, well, before the colonial pipelines attack. Uh, and I've been doing cyber things in various capacities for about 30 years now, that it would be the main topic or a main topic at the G7 summit, at the NATO summit, at the US-EU summit, and then. Really, the main topic with uh, President Putin and President Biden, and 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 he's doing exactly what he needs to do. He's first treating it as a priority, and second, he's uh, you know he's setting expectations. He's saying to President Putin, "We cannot afford to let these things happen. We cannot allow you to provide safe haven for these what appear to be criminals, not operating at the direction of the Kremlin." But that doesn't absolve you. You know, yeah. responsible states control what comes from their territory. So that that message that was reinstated uh, or restated when he had his recent phone call with with, you know, uh, a consequent threat. You know, we're going to do something about it if you don't. is important. Yes. Um,
1: but can you help us understand what Russia's interests are and why do they let these things go on? Why do they provide safe haven?
4: It's a a good question. I I used to chair something called the G8 when it was a G8. Russia was in a high-tech crime group. And I, as a prosecutor, dealt with Russia for a while. And they've never really been cooperative on cybercrime at all. Uh, And there's three reasons for that. One, sometimes it's done in the direction of the Kremlin. Again, that doesn't seem to be the case here. Uh, The other is corruption, which certainly happens in Russia, uh, where the criminal groups are paying off people. And the third is that when it's disrupting Western states, when it's not attacking Russia itself or Russian interests, it kind of plays into Putin's larger uh, views that, you know, disrupting Western democracies, causing confusion and chaos plays into their, their larger picture. So as long as they weren't going after Russian things, uh, it was allowed. It was tacitly allowed. And, 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 and that allowed these groups to flourish in that environment where they really didn't risk any harm.
1: We're coming up on a break but then what leverage does the. US have like how can they get Russia to really comply
4: well I think I think a number of things uh, you know they uh, President Biden said what our expectations clearly are we could amp up sanctions now that hasn't worked necessarily in the past but I think sanctions that actually affect Putin's money flows or his cronies or things he cares about uh, we can uh, take our own action to disrupt these groups even within Russia won't be able to arrest them but at least disrupt them. Uh, we can uh, work with our partners and allies, and Ellen Nakashima mentioned this, and, and I think that's critically important to put pressure on, on Putin because he'll only act if it's in his interest, either because it's in his beneficial interest or because he's avoiding a greater harm. So I think there's a lot we can do, and we started down that road, uh, and we just need to continue.
1: We're talking with Chris Painter, former federal cyber crimes prosecutor, top cyber diplomat under President Obama and briefly under President Trump as well. We also have Nick Weaver with us, senior researcher in networking and security at the International Computer Science Institute at UC Berkeley. I see calls and comments coming in and I will get to them right after the break. And if you want to join the conversation again, that phone number 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. You can also post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. What questions do you have about ransomware? How should the U.S. prevent ransomware attacks? Have you or your company been the victim of one? You can let us know. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Forum's launching a book club where we'll announce a monthly book pick, then you read with us. You can post your reflections in the hashtag readwithforum. This month it's Maceo Montoya's novel, Preparatory Notes for Future Masterpieces. Read it by July 22nd, then join the show to share your questions and reflections with the author. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. For the latest updates on our programs and guests, Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum, and you can follow me at M. Kim, reporter. This is Forum. We're talking ransomware with Nick Weaver, senior researcher in networking and security at UC Berkeley. Chris Painter, former federal cybercrimes prosecutor, and you, our listeners, are with us. 866-733-6786 is the number. And let me go to caller Wanda in Oakland. Wanda, thanks for joining us.
5: Yes, uh, it seems to me, everything having been said, there's only one thing you can do, and that is cut off the source of money, and that's cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency should be made illegal and start over again for those folks who are interested in that kind of alternate form of currency. But cryptocurrency is the problem. Hmm. As long as it exists, they're going to get away with it. You can do everything you've been talking about. Nothing's going to happen until the cryptocurrency is ended.
1: Wanda, thanks. Nicholas Weaver, what
2: do you think? Uh, I don't think you need to actually make cryptocurrency illegal because the systems themselves are very fragile. And if you just actually enforced existing regulations on cryptocurrency exchanges and like forced the offshore exchanges to do the money laundering laws, you treated cryptocurrency miners as money transmitters. There's a death of a thousand cuts that could be done with regulation. And since uh, it's not the topic of this, but the cryptocurrency space overall is a deeply negative some um, sum, uh, system, so it doesn't actually benefit society, eh, it would be nice overall. But you don't need to ban it. You can just actually enforce existing regulation.
4: Yeah, I, they... I'd agree with Nick, that. And I'd Nick, say practically, Penny, yes. yeah, practically you're not going to ban uh, cryptocurrency. I think it's... It's whatever you think of cryptocurrency. It's advanced too far that, uh, that, that so I don't think it's going to get banned in any sense. But but there are existing uh, you know as Nick said there are existing things out there like know your customer rules that we can enforce much more strongly. And and you know at least the discussions I, I've had with cryptocurrency providers who are based in the U.S. is they don't want their systems to be used for illegal things. It doesn't help them uh, establish leg- legitimacy. And so part of this and the White House announced this today too. Is working with international partners to better regulate and enforce existing regulations on those on those systems on those markets around the world.
1: What about banning ransom payments,
4: Chris? Well, that, that's a that's a very good question. You know, the one I, I mentioned this task force that we were on, this uh, sixty person uh, task force, and in three months, uh, the one thing we couldn't reach a conclusion on, a consensus on, was that issue. And you can argue certainly that if you ban the payments outright and the criminals are gonna get starved uh, and, and they won't do it anymore. But the problem is you also cause a lot of harm to the potential victims or the actual victims. So you know, uh, for big corporations, you might say, well, they should have known better, they should have taken better security. Uh, but we're also talking about small and medium-sized businesses. We're talking about critical infrastructure, municipalities sometimes. So we need a glide path to get there. We need to be able to provide the victims more resources. That was one thing that was announced today. So they know where to call and what to do about ransomware. And we need to make, uh, if you pay ransomware, you need to report it. That's something we, we've uh, advocated for as well. Um, you know, I, I think there are factors you need to consider before you ban them outright, because I think it has some second order effects.
1: Let me go to caller Ron in San Francisco. Hi, Ron.
4: Hi.
0: Uh, for those of
4: us who are not that technically savvy, a basic question is, are you still at risk of ransomware if you do not open suspect emails and or download attachments from those emails? So there are two separate questions there. Opening the email or and or downloading what attachment there is, thinking it's from someone that you need to download something mm. from.
1: Ron, thanks. Nicholas Weaver.
2: Uh, yes, there's a lot of other ways that ransomware gets in systems. So, like with Colonial Pipeline, it got in through a unsecured VPN endpoint um, or poorly secured VPN endpoint. For the Kiasa business or Kisaya, um victims, they were victims who were doing everything right. They were outsourcing their IT structure to professionals because they were small and b- medium businesses. And the attackers exploited the update mechanisms and the management tools in order to infect the victims. And overall, I think the emphasis on not click on attachments, etc., is poorly done because there are many other ways that attackers get in. And we've spent... Uh, decades training users to click on attachments. How many email messages have you gotten from your bank over the years that are indistinguishable from a phishing message?
1: Well, Ron, thanks for the question. Along the same lines, Zach writes, a big distinction needs to be made between this kind of attack and a virus or worm. Ransomware attacks involve an individual hacking into a computer on a corporate network and manually overriding all the virus ransomware protection software. This all boils down to passwords. Passwords that are too weak and easily guessable by hackers or reused from a separate breach are always the weakest link in network security. We need laws that force any company associated with critical infrastructure to implement strong user access requirements like physical access cards, password managers, and two-factor authentication. So Nick Weaver, is Zach right? This all boils down to
2: passwords? No. So one of the primary issues in a ransomware outbreak is when the attacker gets on what's known as the domain controller. This is a Windows computer that's used to control all the other computers. They get onto that, and that computer has the authority to go out and touch all the other ones. Password hygiene is important, but a lot of these attacks do not depend on bad passwords. And that's one of the problems we're facing is this is such a high revenue source now that attackers could spend a million dollars to get a zero-day exploit, that is, a attack that nobody has a defense for yet, hmm. and use it and make lots of money that way. And uh, the distinction between worm and ransomware is messy, to say the least. So... Um, the WannaCry worm of a couple years ago was a pur- apparent ransomware payload. It just got out early um, and spread worldwide before uh, the attackers in question were able to make sure that the ransomware payload worked. Hmm. At the same time, we had the NotPetya worm uh, a couple weeks later, which was. Fake ransomware. It was a Russian attempt to disrupt the computers of anybody who pays Ukrainian business taxes, but it was disguised as ransomware to give it a veneer of plausible deniability. I see.
1: Well, I do want to ask you, Chris Painter, about what ended up happening with the ransom that was paid by Colonial Pipeline. This was by the group Dark Side, I guess, which has gone dark since. But anyway, my understanding is that the federal government in that particular case was able to recover more than half of the ransom that was paid. Uh,
4: Yeah, and I think it would have recovered almost all of it, but the price of the the, uh, currency had gone down in in the interim. I think it was a very, you know, this is something that I think the federal government should be more agile and trying new things. And and new methods. Now it's not clear there's an affidavit that supports what they did and, and the orders they got. Uh, it's not clear how they were able to get access to the what they call wallet here where the, the cryptocurrency was stored and take it from the criminals. It could have been sloppy tradecraft by the criminals. They could have gotten it some other way. It wasn't laid, that part wasn't laid out. Uh, so it's not clear this is scalable that they can do this again and again. But those are the kinds of things because you're uh-huh. unlikely to put these people in cuffs that so you need to look at doing.
1: I see. so you're uh, saying other- that it's not a sustainable strategy because it's just it took a lot well, of resources. No, I,
4: I think I think you no. I think you just need to be clever and try new things. But the criminals learn too. Now, like I said, it's not clear how they were able to get in this wallet to make this recovery. But you know, I'm sure the criminals have looked at this too, and will try to uh, adjust their trade craft to make uh-huh. that more difficult. Um, but it was, I thought it was great. I was, I, thought, I was very happy they did it. I think it sent a strong message. Uh, now the question is, can you continue to do that? And how often can you do that? And that's why you have to look at all the other tools you have and, and just use everything.
1: I see. And Nick Weaver, you wanted to jump in.
2: Uh, the interesting thing on that seizure of the ransom is it looks like it was basically the affiliate's share of the ransom that by the time they got the cryptocurrency back the value had dropped by 50% but of the initial payment this was about 80% which is basically the affiliate's cut so hmm. um, it was not uh, dark sides bitcoin it was the dark side affiliate that actually broke in who got their money stolen
4: yeah so it, it probably happened after they split up the split up the proceeds
1: Right. Well, let me go to Richard in San Francisco. Hi, Richard.
2: Yeah, hi. Thank you. Um,
0: so my question is that, you know, it's quite easy. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm a, I'm a computer science teacher here in the Bay Area, and, and I've sort of looked at this problem <clears throat> in that context. But I also think about it from a commercial perspective. It's very
2: easy to put your business online, uh, but the sophistication of these hackers, uh, you know, is way outpaced the of the most common package to put your business online, when do you think that that gap might close? Because it feels like uh, the best huh. offense is a good defense here, maybe?
4: Richard, thanks. Well, Chris Painter? Yeah, let me let me start with that. Uh, first, uh, yeah, look, uh, there's a, a range of threats you face, uh, business faces, individuals face. Uh, a lot of them, though, are kind of low, what we call low-hanging fruits that you can repel by just having the kind of good cyber hygiene that, unfortunately, although we've been talking about this for 20 years, we just don't have. We don't even have it for government and a lot of the critical infrastructure. That's something I think we need to address. And, and you know, so that's part of it. There are criminal groups, and there's some indications this our this evil group uh, and its latest uh, attack before it went dark uh, used what uh, Nick talked about, a zero-day, something that no one can really defend or prepare against, or it's very difficult to do, very sophisticated. And certainly when you have state actors like Russia or China, they can use, although they don't have to use all the time, sophisticated methods. So uh, it it certainly is a challenge, I think, but a lot of this can be stopped uh, if you simply uh, do that basic cyber hygiene that unfortunately hasn't been drummed in people's heads enough to do. uh, And I, I think that would be, that at least make them shift to harder targets. Again, Chris Painter is
1: the top cyber diplomat under President Obama. Nick Weaver is a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute at UC Berkeley. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Nick Weaver, go ahead.
2: Uh, There's also one other thing that I think is underplayed but really important, and that's the notion of resilience and recovery. So ask yourself, how long will the disruption be in your business if every computer connected to the network simultaneously burst into flight, because that's the metric for recovery. And so if you have like offsite backups that may be a week old or whatever, you have a way of saying, even in the worst case scenario, I have limited damage and mitigation is really important. So like my personal data security is such that the quip is if I seriously lose my working set date, my critical work data for more than a week, I'm busy fighting off the zombie apocalypse and I won't care anymore because I have disconnected offsite backups and critical stuff backed up in cloud infrastructure and the like.
4: Yeah, I I agree. I agree with that. I want to address one other thing that uh, the caller had mentioned, which is a good offense is the best defense. Well, You know, there are certainly things the federal government can do to disrupt groups, but uh, private sector folks and victims taking this into their own hands, and there's something, uh, there's a debate that goes on of whether or not they should be able to hack back, you know, try to hack back against the the, the bad people. Uh, But the fact is, um, that doesn't make much sense. You could hit the wrong people because uh, smart criminals are going to route their attacks through innocent uh, computers around the world. Uh, you could cause an incident yourself and you can cause more damage to yourself. So, you know, the government does have some tools and that's why it's important to actually talk to the government, report these incidents to the government. No, don't just try to do it under the radar. There are things that they can do uh, both to help track these guys down, but also to help you with some of the resiliency that uh, that Nick talked about.
1: I think it's interesting, Chris Painter, that you're talking about disclosing them because that's one of the things that has been brought up a lot, that people, companies do not share when this happens to them. And it's almost become normalized to some extent. I mean, of course, the ones we hear about in media are very, very high profile with far reaching effects, but it seems that some businesses have even just incorporated ransomware attacks into the cost of doing business. I guess what I'm wondering is Chris Major, what concerns you most? What is the gravest risk you see to ransomware that? that requires this kind of response um, as opposed to what a lot of companies have done which is pay the ransom
4: look if it's if it's ordinary cyber crime and i think that's serious too i used to prosecute those kinds of cases i, I think that's important too because you, you want to try down the criminals and all the other things but cyber crime is often financial you're making some money the difference with what we've seen here it's, it's not just the extortion element where you're taking their data, which is part of ransomware too, and you're you're holding that hostage. But it's making the systems unusable, locking the systems, and we're talking about uh, things like colonial pipeline, which is a critical infrastructure, things like meat processing plants, uh, potentially healthcare systems. In Ireland, their their healthcare system was disrupted. Right. Those we can't afford to have go down. That is a national security issue, and so in that case. Now, look, I think people should report these incidents across the board anyway. I think we've talked about a national uh, cyber breach record, a reporting law now for about 20 years and still haven't made process, progress. There are some bills on the Hill now to address this, but especially when we're talking ransomware, because of its destructive, potential destructive and disruptive character, that we need to know the scope of the problem, we need to be able to address the problem uh, You know and and it's it's a whole different game to me
1: nicholas weaver are you optimistic that with the attention that this is getting some of the strategies that are being put out there though i don't know that i've maybe you are hearing the federal government talking about regulating cryptocurrency for example but are you optimistic that that this will finally be addressed in a really significant way
2: uh not until we really get serious on payments that we had a similar case about a decade ago with Viagra spammers. People would break into computers and send spam for Viagra. We all remember this. This was a $100 million a year gross revenue criminal enterprise run in the same affiliate structure, again, out of Russia. And these gangs operated with impunity until we developed mechanisms um, to disrupt their payments and once we disrupted their payments uh they were out of business in six months and were saying bleeping visa is burning us with napalm
1: so that therein lies the solution chris painter Mm -hmm. last word to you at this point as you say biden has drawn a red line with russia putting out all of these strategies, where do we go? Are we gonna see a lot more ransomware attacks still, regardless?
4: I, I think we'll continue to see some, but this is this is not, I think the White House uses this phrase and I agree with it. This is not a light switch. You simply don't take some action and it goes away. Uh, these groups have been good at, even when they go dark or disappear, they're likely to pop up again in some other form. So we've got to treat this as a sustained problem and, and really a campaign that might take you know, months or even years Uh, I do think we can substantially reduce it, I think, by going after the safe havens, by looking at cryptocurrency, uh, not, you know, using existing regulations, by thinking about uh, sanctions and what OFAC, as they call it, you know, payments to ransomware groups that are involved in terrorism. You can't do that. That's already been clear. Uh, Looking at reporting of these things, there's a number of things we can do as the U.S. and even more we can do with allies. So I am I am mildly optimistic we can make a dent on this. I think it's going to take some time.
1: Well, Chris Painter, Nicholas Beaver, thank you both. Also, thank you to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. Thanks to listeners for their questions and comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
5: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.